Indeed. Again. As I'm hoping that you know of that already. You clicked on it, so. <laughs> I think we're almost at episode 100, right? Pretty close. Yeah, I think we're like 96 or 97 or some shit like that. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. We didn't even we didn't even do a mic check. It looks good, so. Yeah. We're freeballing it. So if it sounds like shit, that's not our fault. <laughs> it's obviously We're your not fault. gonna redo it. Oh, just kidding. <laughs> Anyways. Um, do you have anything before we just dive right into this uh true crime week? No. No? Nope. Just took a big old sip of a sour beer and had the sour beer face. It's just because it's not that beer that we had the other night. <laughs> Last night to be exact. She uh she tried the beer of all beers last oh night. Oh my god, it is like the golden chalice of beers. Okay. So good. It was so good. I can't wait to go there tomorrow to get more of it. Yep, we're going on a, we're taking the best dog out of our yes, three. The best dog. The most well behaved and the one that actually listens to us dog. Uh, it's gonna be a blast. Anything for the podcast? Um no. Did you have a good week? Um, no. <laughs> Nothing for the podcast? Uh, no. Did okay. you have a good week? Yeah, it was average. That's good. No, yeah. It was fine. You can't hear that. Okay. <clears throat> I'm lifting the water so she doesn't get tempted. Okay. All right. I think I am uh, first. Yes, yes, and you Let me... have something super fun. I can't wait. Yeah, we got a we got a big one. A very interesting guy. Very interesting. Like if you if you took away the like ten murders, um, he would be <laughs> he would be extremely... very very smart and like probably like very involved. Yes, with, like mo- like not modern technology, but like advancements of things. He's yep. in- very extremely intelligent. Oh yeah, it's just yep. such a shame. Right. Uh, we're gonna be talking about Edmund or Ed Kemper. Edmund. Edmund. Dare you to name our child that? I cannot. Sammy's apparently listened to like a bunch of podcasts on this, so it's my let's favorite topic. Hope that I stack up. <laughs> she, she didn't give me a solid yes. So, um, <laughs> let's just get into it. So Edmund Emil Kemper the third was born on December eighteenth of nineteen forty eight in Burbank, California, the middle child of Edmund Emil Kemper Jr. Yeah. And Clarnell Kemper. His parents ended up getting divorced in 1957, and he moved with his mom and his two sisters to Montana for a Ugh, little bit. That's where they fucked up. Short-lived, though. Oh. Uh, he had a pretty difficult relationship with his mom. She was uh, an alcoholic and was extremely critical of him pretty much from the time he was, like, single digits on. Ugh. She forced him. Uh, Is there ever a time that you're not single digits? Yeah, when you hit 10 and up. Oh. <laughs> Never mind. Anyways. <laughs> um, stupid. When he did hit 10, uh, she ended up forcing him to live in the basement away from everybody else. And it was like not a good, nice, finished basement. It was like rat infested. That's like Cinderella, but piss like. ridden. Worse. Right. He um, didn't get the glow up. <laughs> Or apparently charming. she states that she did this to keep him away from his sisters who she feared he might hurt harm you know here's the thing with that is. is that there's other ways to go about that instead of like isolating your child i agree with that um from a very um dark 
early age. Uh, he had a pretty rough, I don't know if that's even the word I would use, uh, fantasy life. Like oh. he would daydream a lot and even uh, night dream. Is that what you would call it? Just dream like dream versus lucid, daydream? Lucid dreaming? Where, like, no, no, no. He would just dream about um, night dream. killing his mom. So I don't think he was lucid dreaming, but he was just, like, at night dreaming about killing his mom. Um, He would take his sister's dolls and cut their heads off. And then he would coerce his sisters into playing a game that he called Gas Chamber. I remember this. Where he would have them blindfold him and lead him to a chair where he pretended to be executed. Mm -hmm. I was going to say executioned uh, in the gas chamber. And he would pretend that until he quote-unquote died, which um, his sisters have reported in various interviews that that was weird. <laughs> even when they like, were young, they were what like, do you this even do? is like, not playing. To play, like you just yeah. stand there and you're just like, well, this we've <laughs> admitted the cast and he just sits there. Yeah. He's well, like, exactly. Right. Yep. Yeah. So uh, you're going to hate this. His first victims were the family cats. I know. Uh, at age 10, he buried one of them alive, and then at age 13, he just slaughtered it, the second one with a knife. Uh, after all of this, he ends up going to live with his dad for a little bit, but ended up back with his mom, who decided to send him to live with his grandparents in North Fork, California. Um, so nobody wanted him, so he goes with grandma and grandpa. He hated this. Uh, he was mm-hmm. on a farm, not his kind of gig. Uh, before he went there, he had already begun learning about, like, guns and things like that, but his grandparents took away his rifle after he killed several birds and a lot of, like, other small animals that were on the farm. Mm-hmm. August 27th of 1964, he ends up, um, he's 15 at the time, and he just goes in and he shoots his grandma yep. in the kitchen after they'd had, like, a some kind of argument uh, grandpa wasn't there. She's just like putting groceries away or doing whatever, and he shoots her. Grandpa gets home, and Ed goes outside and shoots him as well by the car, and then hides that body. Afterwards, he calls his mom, tells her exactly what happened. She's like, "You need to call the police and tell them what you did." Uh, later, in various, we'll find out that he does like all kinds of interviews. He loves talking to people about this kind like his life Mm -hmm. uh he ends up saying that he shot his grandma to see what it felt like he added that he killed his grandpa so that he wouldn't have to find out that his wife had been murdered um yeah that's such a courtesy all right he didn't i i think he didn't want witnesses that i was also gonna say like if the grandpa came in and like found that like right then what would have happened yeah so, all in all, he ends up getting sent for this uh, to Atascadero State Hospital. Uh, it was a secure facility for this kind of offender, right? It wasn't just like a hospital, but it was more for like the criminally... Insane? I, insane's like kind of a extreme, extreme word, yeah. but yeah. It was more of a... Um, it's like you probably should like go to prison but like you kind of have like mental health issues that you probably should also go to an institution yeah. for right um so yeah it was secure but it wasn't prison there were no guard towers and it was basically the purpose was like okay you committed this crime because of this illness so we're going to treat that mm-hmm. uh, instead of being like a penitentiary where you're like 
making up for your crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ed took a bunch of tests and began to like kind of learn about himself and learn about his own nature, why he did what he did, and why he thought the way that he does. And then he gained a lot of insight about like other people who were in there, why they committed their crimes. Uh, he never actually accepted responsibility for killing his grandparents, saying that it was beyond his control. And he kind of maintained that forever through the rest of these. Like, yeah, he he basically he, stated it was part of him. I think he definitely is a very firm believer of, like, these are my mental illnesses and there's nothing I can do about it because it's who I am. Yep. Instead of being like, mm-hmm. I don't know, like those, I don't, I don't know, never mind. No, you're, I think you're right. And instead of like actually accepting any kind of responsibility, he worked at kind of learning what he needed to say to make them think that he was like recovered and able to leave. Play the game. Right. So he ended up working in the psych laboratory and helped administer tests to other people who were in the hospital. Weird. He enjoyed it. He took pride in doing a good job which his doctors interpreted as a very good sign. Um, And it's worth noting that he was actually diagnosed as a sociopath while he was at Atascadero. Um, Sociopaths, like, don't have emotions, right? Right. Or is that a psychopath? Is psychopath even a term? No. Um, But, yeah, back then they thought that they were, like, not very good workers they were uncooperative they just wanted to do their own thing not help other people because they didn't have that empathy and couldn't say like yeah oh this guy needs help he's struggling so i'm gonna help him right like someone just got hit by a car maybe i should help them or should i just drive over them because they're in my way right um so this kind of made them because he was like doing things that were against the norm for that particular diagnosis it made them think that he was like rehabbing oh like retraining his brain to be different yep like what pills are supposed to do yep uh while he was there he got to know other people that were at atascadero including serial rapists who shared stories of their crimes with him seemed a little young he's 15 yeah but i guess that's what we do super young what the fuck this go ahead i was just gonna say i think like when you Never mind. I'm not going to say this. It's going to sound very narrow-minded of me. Okay. Well, it ended up making a pretty big impression on him. And uh, these, like, fantasies and, like, dream- daydreams that he was having when he was little, once he hit, like, teenagerdom, it became, like, pretty sexual. Like puberty, I'm So sure. he was having, like, pretty violent sexual fantasies, mm-hmm. uh, which, as he was talking to these, uh, these like, rapists... Uh, They were becoming a lot more detailed and intricate and intense. Um, And he was taking a lot of, like, mental notes about, like, what these guys did and what he believed that they did wrong to get them caught. Okay. So he he believed that they got caught because they hadn't been smart. They left witnesses. They left evidence. They attacked women that they knew. Or they did their, like, crimes in, like, too public of a place so he's like learning from them so he's like stacking all of this info in the back of his brain um he didn't have any like plans at this time that he has talked about um but obviously he drew information from this that he would use later mm-hmm. he ended up claiming religious conversion and uh took to looking up any kind of like biblical reference that he heard around the hospital um he was known to be pretty clean-cut conservative 
pretty well shaven like this was obviously like 60s 70s right so like everybody had the, like very like, the hippie look and he oh, definitely did I not have about that the hippies right um so and he never shared like all these fantasies and weird things that he's thinking about with doctors obviously because he knew that that was going to keep him there instead he was using all these little buzzwords and trigger words that he knew were going to help him get out which happened uh he ends up being released in 1969 and best year to get released yeah <laughs> right he gets released and he starts off at this like community college that was near Atascadero and while he attended school he was still under like the supervision of like the overarching authority like basically juvie so he, like, mm-hmm. he was still checking in as if he had like a probation officer that mm-hmm. kind of thing that we do now so still doing that uh, despite his prison doctor's recommendation that he didn't go back and live with his mom because it was clear even though he wasn't sharing everything with the docs like he was telling them about his feelings about his mom so they're like okay she is a trigger Mm-hmm. And he should not go back there. Right. But uh, that's exactly where they ended up sending him uh, because she had ended up moving to Santa Cruz, California, where she moved after ending her third marriage and she took a job at the University of California. So um, he ends up going to community college for a little bit, worked a bunch of different jobs, found employment with the Department of Transportation in 1971. Still living with mom. But gets this new job. He's stoked about it. He wanted to be a cop. And he had applied to be a state trooper. Uh, but he was rejected because he was so tall and weighed like way too much. So they had like a minimum height and weight. And then they also had a maximum. And he rang in at six foot nine and almost three hundred pounds. He would kind of like move between like two eighty and three hundred generally. I didn't know there was, like, a height requirement for being a popo. I guess. I guess when it comes to, like, fitting into a car. that That's the only thing I can think of is that they re- couldn't find a car that would fit him. Yeah. I don't think that really applies most places now, at least not at our department. No, and I think, like, back then it was just, like, the types of cars that they could cars. use. You, you only had a couple different Yeah, cars. very different. Like, now there's, like, a variety of options. Our big guys options. drive trucks. Yeah, because trucks are for big boys and ladies and right. whatever you want to yes, be called. Exactly. Um, so that didn't work, but he became friends with a lot of the troopers. Like he would hang out socially with them at bars and stuff like that. Same. Uh, they Same called him Big Ed. Um, one one of these like state troopers that he hung out with gave him a training school badge and handcuffs, and another one let him borrow a gun. So I... that's cool. I bet they felt bad after. And then his personal car that he drove uh, resembled that of a police cruiser at the time. So he was really trying to, you know, dress the part so he could fit in. Fit in. Same year that he started working for the highway department, Ed was hit by a car while he was out on his motorcycle. Uh, His arm ends up being pretty badly injured and he, through like a lawsuit, he ended up getting a $15,000 settlement um he wasn't able to work anymore after this and so he started like other hobbies um he noticed that a large number of young women would hitchhike in that area and took an interest in that so he ends up buying a new car with some of that settlement money and he starts buying and storing a bunch of tools that he thought he might need to pursue some of these new hobbies 
these tools included a gun, a knife, and some handcuffs. So if that is any hint. I'm surprised there's no shovel in there. Right. The starter oh, kit. Yeah, yeah. Garbage yeah. bags. Right. Yeah, yeah. Bleach. So this uh, was his, was his, I don't know, metamorphosis into the co-ed killer. He became a butterfly of murder. A butterfly of murder. So, first, he picks up female hitchhikers, lets them go. No big deal. But, he obviously eventually escalated when he ends up offering a ride to two Fresno State students, Marianne Pesci and Anita Lucessa. Uh, they never make it to where they're trying to go, obviously. Uh, their families end up reporting them missing soon after uh, he picks them up, but nothing would be known of their eventual demise until august 15th when a female head was discovered in the woods near santa cruz and was later identified as pesci's uh Lucessa's remains however were never found kemper later explained that he stabbed and strangled pesci before stabbing Lucessa as well after the murders he brought the bodies back to his apartment and then took their heads off and their hands uh he also reportedly engaged with sexual activity with uh, their corpses. Their headless corpses. Mm-hmm. He's so fucked up, dude. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm so interested in the fact that he, like, obviously was dipping his toes in the water with, like, the first, like, few. He's like, okay, if I go this route, like, there's not as many streetlights and they don't seem all that worried about me picking them up. And then he, like, lets them go. Yep. And his first choice is to do two. That is odd. Very odd. You'd think that he'd want to, like, progress with, like, one. Be like, okay, one I can control seems one. safer. So then let's go to two. Yeah. But even then, two's so fucking... It's because he's so big. That's, I think, exactly what it was, is he knew that he'd be fine. He could do whatever he wanted. He yeah. probably rigged his car so he could lock it, and they couldn't unlock it. Yeah. And he probably just picked them out one by one. Ugh. I was going to guess. Um, so later that year, on September 14th, 1972, he picks up a 15-year-old Aiko Ku, uh, who had decided to hitchhike rather than wait for the bus that she normally took to take her to Damn dance it. class. Oh, that makes me so sad. It's like, just do what you normally do. Yeah. If you did the bus, you'd be fine. Maybe. Yeah. Um, to spare you from those details, he followed the same MO that he did with uh, the first two. So that's three total. Uh, January of 1973. I think so, yeah. January of 1973, Ed continued just to escalate or just continued i guess uh picking up hitchhiker cindy shawl whom in this round he shot her and killed Damn. her uh while his mom was out he goes to her house and hid shawl's body in his room that he had as mom's house he dismembered her corpse and then the next day he threw the parts into the ocean Several parts were later discovered when they washed back up on the beach. Uh, and then he ends up burying her head in his mom's backyard. Uh, he joked later uh, that he'd done this because his mom, quote, always wanted people to look up to her. He's Very dark. Uh, February 5th of 1973, Ed used a campus parking sticker that his mom had given him to uh, complete another double murder he drove to the university where he offered a ride to two students rosalind thorpe and alice Liu. shortly after he picked him up he shot both of them and then drove past his campus security at the gates with the two dead women in his car i'm guessing in the back seat i have no idea but that is 
atrocious. That is they the worst. They didn't notice. Yeah, that's so fucking bad. It's so fucked. Also, I'm not sure if it's just the Twilight that's on the brain, but Rosalind and Alice. Oh, yeah, that is weird. That is so close to Rosalie and Alice. Anyways. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. I digress. Yeah. After uh, their murders, he decapitated both of them and dismembered their bodies as well. He removed the bullets from their heads and disposed of their parts in various different locations. I don't know. I don't know if he's ever expanded on that or not. I'm sure he has. I'm sure he's talked all about his nonsense. Yeah. In March, some of Thorpe's and Lou's remains were discovered by hikers near Highway 1 in San Mateo County. At the time of these murders, it's worth noting that there were two other serial killers acting at the exact same time. Oh, no. uh, John Lindley Frazier and Herbert Mullins were both killing people. So, so it's probably hard to like tell the difference between or, all of yeah, them. Yep. Yeah. So this ended up with Santa Cruz receiving the nickname of the murder capital of the world in the press. Good. For a while. <laughs> Good. Um, Kemper, like I said, was dubbed the co-ed killer and the co-ed butcher. This was because it was pretty rare for women to go to college at the time. And when they did, they could only go to co-ed colleges and they were referred to as co-eds where the males were just students. men or students. Fuck them. The females were co-eds. That's so fucked. I don't know why. Because to just separate them. Because we're women. Yeah. That's why yeah. I'm. I'm surprised that it's still not going on today. Yeah. So April of 1973, uh, Ed committed what would be his last two murders. Um, it was Good Friday of that year, and he goes to his mom's house where they had an argument. Um, this was not unusual, but for whatever reason, this was the one that set him off. This is it. He ends up attacking his mom after she went to bed. He hit her in the head with a hammer, and then he cut her throat with a knife, decapitated her, raped her headless body. Fuck me, uh, I forgot about that part. Also, just raped her head. If you want to just, if you wanted that visual, go ahead. But that is, I think that is, like, very telling of him. We should probably have trigger warned this. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah, same. I don't know why. I'm taking back everything that I said about him being my favorite. Is that, I figured you would after I just, <laughs> said enough of this. No, it's like I know his his crimes were fucking awful. But the like thing his... is, when he talks and when you hear interviews and you hear about things, you almost forget that he was this fucking bad he just speaks like so eloquently uh-huh. like i think that's one of the things that we forget about like most serial killers like ted yeah. bundy and like they're they're charismatic yeah they're able to like woo people mm-hmm. it's so it's fun and that's the shitty thing is like in all the research i did which i mean i have like three or four really complex um sources and none of them could give any information beyond the names of the victims like everybody is so obsessed with like him his psyche that we forget about the 10 victims especially like the women like Mm -hmm. it's just women in general i feel like get forgotten about a lot Mm -hmm. um so then to get back to uh his mom um used her head as a dartboard after that and then put took her vocal cords out put them in the garbage disposal it couldn't it didn't work on him so he it just 
like tossed it back up in the sink. And after he was arrested, Ed commented on this saying, quote, that seemed appropriate as much as she bitched and screamed and yelled at me over so many years. End quote. So uh, he hides his mom's body parts, calls his mom friend, his mom's friend Sally Hallett over, uh, invites her over to the house for I don't know dinner, coffee, whatever. She gets there, he strangles her, and hides her body in a closet. I don't even know what the point of that was. You're just like I don't know. One more. Yeah. It's... He's like I want an even ten. Maybe. I have no idea. So he flees the area the next day. Uh, drove east until he hit Pueblo, Colorado. No wh- fucking way. Uh-huh. Where on April 23rd, he calls back to the Santa Cruz police to com- totally confess, gives his name. Like, not even one of those, like, cryptic Zodiac yeah, style. It, it, He's like, no, this is Big Ed. I know all these cops that work for this agency. I did all of this. Um, And at first, they didn't believe it because they all thought they knew him. Um, but during a, a bunch of different, like, interrogations that happened after, he would lead them to all of the evidence that they needed to prove that he was, in Jeez. fact, the co-ed killer. So, uh... Talk about egg on your face. Yeah, right? He ends up, um, being indicted on eight counts of first-degree murder because they didn't, they didn't worry about his grandparents because that was done. Yeah. So, eight counts of first-degree murder. This was on May 7th of 1973. He gets assigned the chief public defender of Santa Cruz County, a guy named uh, Jim Jackson. And because he is, he had like so explicitly detailed his confession, the only thing that they, that his counsel had was to plead uh, not guilty by reason of insanity. insanity. Yep. And so because they did that, Kemper twice, um, I guess not because of that, but worth noting that he tried to commit suicide twice while he was in custody the trial went ahead on october 23rd of 1973 three court appointed psychiatrists found him to be legally sane and this that is so interesting to me it's so they they noted that he was at one time psychotic and that was while he was at a tascadero right but um the, like they not only interviewed him normal but they interviewed him using truth serum which i didn't know existed until these notes and i feel like it's not i feel like it's just some kind of like, like placebo yeah i don't know or like just get you kind of high and loose just get me you drunk know what I mean? yeah <laughs> that's what the truth serum is here's a few beers ed right and so they did this and they let the court know afterwards that when they did uh kemper or ed stated that he had engaged in cannibalism alleging that he sliced flesh from the legs of all of his victims and cooked it up and put it in a casserole uh even though he had admitted to doing this uh the psychiatrist determined that he was fully cognizant in each case and said that he enjoyed the prospect of the infamy associated with being labeled a murderer uh Kemper uh, later recanted that confession of the cannibalism. So who knows if that actually happened, but uh, California used what's called the McNaughton standard, uh, which is common, and that held that for a defendant to successfully use the insanity plea, you have to be able to prove that at the time of each crime, the, the suspect that was accused was like, not able to reason correctly because of whatever their various insanity was 
therefore they didn't know the nature of like what they were doing or that it was wrong yeah um and they obviously could not prove that with ed no because i mean like otherwise he would be literally under this manic state depending on his mental health diagnosis Mm -hmm. he would have had to been under that manic state for like days on end because like it doesn't just take a day, like an, a minute. No, and they were to... spread out enough and had enough of a cooling off period that yeah. there's no way. Yeah, and I feel like the way he talks about it too, if that doesn't speak to like him being like, I know what I did. Mm-hmm. I was very aware of what I was doing and like yes. this is how I did it and this is yes. why I did that. Like that mm-hmm. does not speak like psychosis. No. November 1st, he ends up taking the stand himself, and he testified that he killed the victims because he, quote, wanted them for myself, like possessions. Uh, He attempted to convince the jury that he was insane based on the reasoning that his actions could have been committed only by somebody who was, like, that fucked up. Yeah, right. He said that two beings inhabited his body, and when the killer personality (laughs) took over, he said that it kind of felt like blacking out. Kind November, of, but it, you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> November 8th of 1973, uh, the six-male, uh, six-female jury deliberated for five hours before they declared him sane and guilty on every single count. Good. He asked for the death penalty, requesting that uh, they choose the most, like, the worst way. Like electricity or some bullshit. I don't think he he wanted to be he verbatim said he wanted to be tortured to death. However, there was a moratorium placed on capital punishment by the Supreme Court of California at the time and he instead received seven years to life for each count uh, with these terms to be served concurrently and was sentenced to the California Medical Facility in Vacaville. So I think he's moved since. I don't know. I only know because like a few months ago i was like up this fascination with like i should i want to like write to a serial killer and mm-hmm. i found the prison that he's at i found the address found oh. his like inmate number and everything i did not do it hmm. think you will after this no i will not okay <laughs> no because like what am i gonna say like oh i'm your biggest fan like that sounds that weird. fucking crazy yeah, and like giving him attention is exactly what he wants so yeah. like why would i do that yeah so he remains among the general population in prison and is considered a model prisoner. Uh, he was in charge of scheduling other inmates' appointments with psychiatrists and was an accomplished craftsman of ceramic cups. He was also a prolific reader of audiobooks, which we've talked about a little bit before this. Um, a 1987 LA Times article stated that he was the coordinator of the prison's program for other prisoners to read or narrate audiobooks. Um, and he had personally spent over 5,000 hours narrating books with several hundred completed recordings to his name. He retired from these positions around two, uh, 2015 when he had a stroke and oh, was shit. basically declared medically disabled at that time. Oh, shit. He received his first rules violation in 2016 because he failed to provide a urine sample. He had a stroke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right? <laughs> like, grab his dick for him. I don't know. <laughs> Help him out a little bit. Holy shit. Damn. Strokes but... aren't, like... Yeah. I cut my toe. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. your brain's fucked up, dude. Yeah, yeah. Um, while he was in prison, Kemper participated in a number of 
pretty famous interviews, uh, including a segment from the 1982 documentary called The Killing of America, as well as an appearance in the 1984 documentary Murder, No Apparent Motive. These interviews have contributed to the understanding of the mind of serial killers, and if anybody has seen Mindhunter, they know who John Douglas is. Uh, He's an FBI profiler, one of the first, and he described Kemper as among the brightest prison inmates he had ever interviewed and capable of, quote, rare insight for a violent criminal. I think that Mindhunter is what made me, like, get this, like, weird fascination with Kemper. The actor they found for him was uncanny. So spot on, dude. Yes. Like, his mannerisms, the way he talks, the way he fucking looks, like... Yeah. Imagine being like, you know what role I'm good for? The only role I'll ever be good for is if somebody decides to make a TV or movie show about... Ed, Ed Kemper. Kemper. Yeah. And then he sees the posting of Mindhunter and he's like, He's sold. like, holy shit. <laughs> Um, Kemper is super forthcoming about the nature of his crimes and has stated that he participated in the interviews to save others like himself from killing. At the end of his uh, Murder No Apparent Motive interview, he said, quote, and this is a long quote, but it's good. Uh, he said, quote, there's somebody out there that's watching this and hasn't done that, hasn't killed people, but wants to and rages inside and struggles with that feeling or is so sure that they have it under control. They need to talk to somebody about it. Trust somebody enough to sit down and talk about something that isn't a crime. Um, thinking that way isn't a crime. Doing it isn't just a crime. It's a horrible thing. It doesn't know when to quit, and it can't be stopped easily once it starts. Which I think is very insightful. Yeah, it's pretty insane. Very dark if you remember what he did. He did. <laughs> but if you don't think about that, it's incredibly yeah, insightful. Yeah, just black it out like I did and just pretend yeah. like it never happened. Right. Uh, Ed was first eligible for parole in 1979. He was obviously denied that time around and has been subsequently denied in every single parole petition he's made since then. He'll be eligible again in 2024. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's coming up. Yep. So, that so he is can get Ed out on parole? Camper. Yeah. He's been eligible since 79. That's fucking saying, terrifying. Basically, everybody he petitions to... They're like, listen, we understand that he is a pretty good guy now. He's been exemplary. The issue is, is like you inmate. let him go, and he's like clearly going to do it again. But his crimes are so heinous, yeah, that like the risk is not anything anybody's willing to take. Yeah. Ugh, that's dark. Are you ready for something not so dark? Yes. Usually, I've got like the fucked up like kid yeah. murderers, but not this time. I mean, somebody does die, obviously, but it, there's, like, hardly any blood or gore, so. Good. Yes. Um, have you heard about Joshua Vernon Maddox? Nope. Maddox? Is nope. that how you'd say it? Maddox? M-A-D-D-U-X? Sure. Yeah. I, I'm probably mispronouncing I this. I'm I sorry. can't read it from there because I went to the eye doctor today. They changed my prescription. They said I would see better, and then they gave me the exact same contacts in the exact same glasses from before had before so i don't know i can't read it maddox that's what i'm gonna say um he was born march 9th 1990 so pretty pretty young i guess in today's standards he'd be pretty young 
Um, he had an older brother named Zachary, and he had two sisters named Kate and Ruth. His parents divorced at a pretty young age for Joshua, and they ended up living... I'm sorry, he ended up living with his dad, Mike, and his two sisters in Woodland Park, Colorado, which is, like, just outside of Junction? Woodland Park? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Let me look real fast. Or is that, like, an outskirt of Denver? Um, so it is closer to, it's between Castle Rock and Colorado Springs, kind of. Yeah, it is, um, like it's near, it's like kind of around Pikes Peak and like Divide and Cripple Creek. Okay. Yeah. Um, so his parents were divorced and Josh ended up living with his dad, Mike, and his two sisters in Woodland Park, Colorado, which is like Southern Colorado. Um, and that was very close to Pike National Forest, which is pretty important. So tuck that in the back of your mind. Um, growing up, Josh loved music and it was, he loved it so much that he spent like a lot of his free time, like playing the guitar, writing music. Like he was very into that kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, He also was very much so into the outdoors, like 99% of Coloradians. Um, Sadly, a week before Josh's high school uh, graduation, uh, June 1st, 2006, his older brother, Zachary, killed himself. Uh, Zachary was 18, and he suffered from severe depression. Uh, Josh obviously took the death of his older brother very hard, and their dad, Mike, said, quote, It was so difficult on Josh when his brother died. It pushed him over the edge. It was a big shock for the family and a big shock for Josh. He thought highly of his older brother, end quote. So that just kind of sets the scene for this whole thing. So... According to some sources, like his dad, it seemed like Josh was really impacted by this death and really changed him, like, became an introvert, like, very recluse, like, compared to his carefree personality that he had. But then other of my sources said, he was fine. He pulled through and everything appeared to be fine. Bet. Yeah, so I'm like, I would trust what his father says more than, like, random newspapers. Yeah. So, um, but take with that how you will. So two years after Zach died on May 8th, 2008, Josh was at his dad's house and he was telling his sister, Kate, he's like, hey, I'm going to just go out for a walk for a little bit. I'll be right back. Um, So as we talked before, this was not anything out of the ordinary. Josh liked the outdoors. He would often go hiking alone. So Kate didn't think anything different of this behavior that was going on. But eventually hours passed and Kate was like, he should have probably been back by now. And so she right. told their dad, Mike, and he was like, you know what? Maybe he decided, to, maybe he took some camping stuff. Like, we don't know what he took. Like, maybe he just went camping, like, whatever. So then Kate was like, okay, yeah, maybe. But he was also 18 at the time. So even then she was also thinking of other things that might have happened. There's a letter that she wrote, and this is kind of a long Quote, so just bear with me, but she says, quote, since Josh was 18, it has been reasonable to assume he may have decided to leave town to start a new life. As one of his two older sisters, I have always chosen to believe that this was the case. I've expected Josh to return home to my father's house at any time with a wife and small children so that they can meet their grandparents and two aunts. Josh has always been known for his musical and literary talent, so maybe he would find, maybe we would find him playing music with a band on tour or catching him writing successful novels under a pen name so that he could keep his preferred 
lifestyle of solitude in the woods, end quote. Wow. Yeah, so they were really not that concerned when Josh didn't show up. But uh, obviously, we're doing a podcast about it, so it becomes something crazy. <laughs> um, so May 13th, five days after he left, five days, Mike finally was like, we should probably report him as missing. LOL. LOL. So law enforcement like takes this report and they're obviously like, why did you wait so long? Because yeah. if you've ever heard any fucking show called 48 Hours, it's very important to like try to get those things as soon as they happen. So they, as soon as they get the notification, they start searching the area that he was like last to have been seen or like known to have been in. Um, and they even searched like the family's neighborhood. They found nothing. They did this for months. And there wasn't anything that came, uh, not a single, not a single clue, like nothing. They couldn't find shit about him. So they ended up basically coming to the idea that like maybe what Kate thought was true. Like maybe he did end up starting a new life. He was 18. He kind of could do that. It's um, a nice thought. Yeah, it's a very nice thought. And also the police had no reason to suspect foul play. Right. Like, they had, like, literally no evidence to go off of, like, he That's was... That's what sucks about, like, when people report stuff like that. And not only that, but, like, going hiking in the woods, like, nature, like, five days after someone goes missing erases everything. Yep. So, it's kind of like the story that you told a few weeks ago about Sandra? Yes. Sasha? Was it Sandra, Sandra Hughes? Hughes. Yeah. Okay. Um. Anyways, so... Um, in 2015, Chuck Murphy, we're going down a completely different road, <laughs> uh, Chuck was 80 years old and he was a builder from Colorado Springs. He basically owned this land that had a wood cabin on it on Meadowlark Lane and he was like, I don't want it. He's like, instead, I think that, like, as an 80-year-old man, what would be a great profit now would be building, like, a large apartment complex. So he's like, I need to tear down this old cabin, replace it with this really cool place for people to live, and, like, that's it. So, yeah, exactly. It's weird. He originally, this is really interesting with the history, though. Uh, He originally purchased the cabin in the 1950s and had formerly been the homestead of Thunderhead Ranch on Rampart Range Road on Woodland Park's north side, which was an infamous dining, drinking, and gambling complex owned by, quote, Big Bert, end quote, Bergstrom Mm. uh, in the 1930s to 1950s. He had come to America from Sweden, uh, Big Bert did, in 1912 and ran the Thunderhead Inn as a dining and drinking establishment after the end of Prohibition. He also used the ranch as an illegal gambling and prostitution den. Yep, that's what we've all been waiting for. (laughs) And he was arrested by the FBI. But in a a subsequent trial, they found him not guilty. So Hmm. Big Bert got to keep up with his habits. Um, But after Chuck bought it, the cabin hadn't been used, basically. So it was falling into disrepair. It was really just collecting dust at this point. Right. So Chuck had made the decision to demolish it. Obviously, and this was August of 2015 that the demolish, uh, I'm sorry, demolition work started. Chuck's brother, this is just a fun fact that 
I might dive into a little bit later. Chuck's brother lived in the cabin until 2005, but he had moved out and it had become like a storage facility that Chuck just like shoved shit in and forgot about. Okay. Um, animals had been a problem there and there was obviously a noticeable stench oh, when good. Chuck came to the cabin uh, August 7th of 2005. So he didn't really think anything of it. He's like, there's probably just dead animals everywhere. Uh, so Not wrong. Yeah. He hired these workers to dismantle the chimney. Um, and there's know. two of them in the cabin. So just one specific chimney that he's like, let's ter- start with tearing this down. Um, and they're using an excavator. And they reached uh, the interior. And Chuck made a discovery that there was a body of a young man in the chimney and he was basically face down his head i'm sorry yeah his head was below his feet and he was in the fetal position so chuck was like i'm gonna call the police obviously uh the county coroner basically responded out because they're like this is clearly not an alive person but obviously law enforcement did as well because it's a little suspicious um so with the help of dental records you can see where this is going they positively identified the body as josh right yes uh unsurprisingly his family were very surprised by this news and they were like there's no no fucking way he was found missing in a chimney that was less than a mile from our home it was pretty wild. So wild. Uh, his sister Kate said, quote, the situation doesn't make any sense at all. We were really expecting him to be anywhere else in the world, and he was actually very close. The only thing we could figure is that he was being an 18-year-old kid checking out a cabin. It had already been abandoned for a long time, and there was a horrible accident that happened, end quote. Um, the cabin was, like I said, only two blocks from their family home when Josh had left, yet searches for Josh overlooked the building because there had not been any sign of life right. and there was no reason to check a fucking chimney. It's fair. Yeah. Uh, Chuck Murphy, the cabin owner, basically also rarely visited, like I said. Like, he threw shit in there and basically left. Um, what's quite sad is that since the cabin itself stood centrally in a large plot of land surrounding just literally trees mm-hmm. about 50 feet from the road, police were like, it's not close enough for even if you cried for help that nobody would have heard him yep so big bummer heartbreaking yeah the teller county coroner al born did an autopsy this is where things get really interesting he found no evidence of drugs in josh's remains or like alcohol um he also says quote the hard tissue showed no signs of trauma there were no broken bones no knife marks no bullet holes there is so far no answers to any number of things it is very confusing it was not an instant death he I'm sorry, how he died is only a matter of speculation, but we know he did not starve to death because that takes many weeks. So then you go down the chain and you have dehydration, which can take just a few days. And the other thing would be hypothermia, which could take a day or two. We have no evidence to say which one came first, end quote. On September 28th, 2005, Al Bourne made the ruling of an accidental death on Josh's behalf. He speculated that Josh had climbed into the chimney and become stuck in the brickwork, 
Bourne stated that Josh's position in the chimney, quote, appeared to have been a voluntary act in order to gain access, end quote. He concluded that most likely the cause of death was hypothermia, as the temperature around the time of his disappearance between May 8th and May 10th of 2008 had dropped to the high 20s Fahrenheit, and that's negative 6.7 degrees Celsius. So very, cold very, very fuck. cold. Yeah. Um, which, keep that also in the back of your mind when we're talking about things later. But there were many issues that, like, locals had with this coroner's report, especially, like, the family and Chuck. Chuck was like, I don't think that's true at all. Because he, like, knew this house. He knew that the chimney had been built 20 years before, and during its construction, it had been fitted with a thick wire mesh that hung from steel hooks used to keep animal debris from becoming lodged inside the chimney or form inside the cabin itself. So there's like a grate right. essentially. Yeah. Um, he he basically is like there's no way that he would have gone through that to climb into a chimney when like he could have just broken a window. Yeah. Like that seems like way more fucking work. Yeah. Um. So Al Bourne, the coroner, was of the opinion that the grate could have been rusted or corroded, and said he could have basically just gone in there and al also stated there wasn't any of that wire mesh in our photos for like the crime scene so i don't think it was there and chuck was like yo bitch uh that's because i told the workers that were demolishing this place for me to collect the metal so we could sell it for scrap so they took the metal out before we started taking apart the chimney fuck so big bummer no that's like just proves the fact that like he didn't crawl in there because when chuck had the workers remove the metal it was still intact so he didn't get in there in between okay does that make sense yes um so that's why like he's just like well that's why you didn't see it in your crime scene photos because we took it out like literally right before we started dismantling the chimney which was years after he crawled in there right um so there is that uh but that's not the only weird thing that is going on with this coroner's report that doesn't quite add up. There was a large wooden breakfast bar that had been attached to a wall that had somehow been torn from the wall and dragged across to block the chimney, like block what the fireplace. The yeah, of the fireplace in which Josh was at. Well, that's... That, so that if that doesn't suspicious. scream fucking weird, I don't know what will. <laughs> Uh, so, how, like, who would do that? <laughs> Josh wasn't like, hey, let me, yeah. bl- like, this yeah. is going to be the coolest jackass video ever. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So then, due to this response of, like, the public being like, the fuck, this doesn't add up, Alborn reopened the autopsy case just three days after releasing the original report. So, also, as we've covered, Josh's body had been found in the fetal position with his legs above his head, and they were disjointed from his torso. So, ow. Um, as you can imagine, in order to have gone in such a position, he would have had to enter the he- chimney head first if he was going down, feet first if he was going up, which doesn't really make much sense. You know what this reminds me of? I I know exactly what you're going to say. Kendrick Johnson? 100%. <laughs> I'm getting major Kendrick Johnson vibes yeah. from this. Yeah. Um, so this 
the position he was found contradicts his, uh, so Al Boren had previously stated, obviously in his coroner's report, that Josh seemed to have gone down willingly based off of the position he was found in, because mm-hmm. like gravity and stuff. Sure. But perhaps Al Boren came to this conclusion because Josh was six feet tall and about 150 pounds. That's not very easy for somebody to shove another person in a chimney, per se. Sure. So before Alborn came to the conclusion of the autopsy report, he did get found, and I'm not sure by who exactly, but he was found stating that if this had been, um, I don't know, like oh some kind of murder, perhaps, oh uh, he's like, it would have definitely have had to take more than one person to put him in this chimney. Outstanding. Yeah. So he's caught saying all kinds of contradictory shit. But I think the most puzzling fact about Josh's body that we haven't even talked about was that, remember we said it was like below freezing? Mm -hmm. He was found wearing only a thin thermal shirt. Well, that's not right. Yeah. His, the, the worst part about this is that the rest of his clothes, like his pants, his socks, his boxers... Uh like an overshare probably were folded up next to the fireplace inside the cabin where that bar was shoved up against it's like kendrick johnson meets the outlaw pass <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh yeah pretty fucking weird and so people were like what about that shit alborn and he was like quote this one really taxed our brains i bet we found his clothing outside of the firebox he only had on a thermal t-shirt we don't know why he took his clothes off took his shoes and socks off and why he went inside climbed on the roof and went down the chimney it is not linear thinking end quote so basically what he's saying is that josh broke into the cabin Decided to take, like, 90% of his clothes off, rip a bar off of a fucking wall, put it in front of the fucking fireplace, and then go outside, climb onto the roof, and jump down. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't that make fucking sense. That probably didn't happen. <laughs> uh, but Al did eventually do a revised autopsy report, and he said that the cause of death now is not accidental. It is potentially either accidental or murder or undetermined. He couldn't decide. He picked all three. Wow. Um, that's how that works yeah he ended up saying quote uh, we've come up with the most plausible explanation and it will remain an accident he did come down the chimney that's our conclusion end quote but I think he just kind of added the other ones to appease the public so let's talk about the biggest theory which I think is kind of loose personally but it is definitely the most popular one Um, it's because it's based off of a reddit post so a reddit post and like other like people like from the area uh so the police received several obviously anonymous tips saying you should go check out these this particular dude i think he killed josh uh the suspect's name is andrew richard newman who as of january 23rd 2021 was incarcerated in texas in a texas jail um and had previous time spent in seattle and portland prisons with a long history of violent crime so That kind of sets the scene a little bit. Uh, One tip had informed police that he goes by Andy had been seen with Josh before Josh disappeared. Um, When speaking about this, Al, the coroner, said, quote, they can't give me time specifics and we can't generate stuff that goes back seven years, end quote. So 
there's that saying like we can't see evidence from seven years ago that you're telling us like happened like we need concrete proof fair. and he also said again i don't think that one person could have shoved josh if you're saying someone murdered josh one person could not have done this job right so there's that he's like wanting to die on this hill of like no it was an accident but also if somebody murdered him it was only he couldn't have done it by himself even though josh can climb down a chimney and do that to himself and that's (laughs) totally fine he doesn't need any help for that um (laughs) josh is superior uh, in 2015, a post on Reddit, like I said, gave Andy's name and said, it basic- it's super long, but it basically claims that this, like, guy that posted the Reddit post went to school with Andy and Josh and they became short, like, friends and then Josh disappeared. Eventually, Andy moved down to New Mexico where he found himself some friends and he was basically really close to this caretaker of a disabled man. Mm-hmm. Um, Andy eventually was invited by his friend to go to the apartment and hang out. And naturally, when your friends are over, you take a shower, right? So Andy is left alone with th- this disabled gentleman and he decides to kill him. And the caretaker, when he comes out of the bathroom from his shower, realizes that the man he's supposed to be taking care of is dead and Andy is gone. Uh, so... Dun, dun, dun. Outstanding. Yes. Uh, so Andy gets arrested, but he, when he gets arrested, he's like, oh, yeah, I also killed some chick in Taos, New Mexico. And he stuffed, he's like, I stuffed her body in a barrel. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> law enforcement right. did indeed find a woman stuffed in a barrel in Taos, but they already had somebody in custody for it. Uh-oh. So, rah, rah, raggy. Um, years later, the caretaker that had any, like, inkling to convict andy got killed in a bar fight and so without him officers didn't have anything in the way of evidence so the and the case against andy for that murder out the window um and so andy before leaving new mexico had been known to brag about quote putting josh in a hole end quote so i'm no detective but here's my theory about that though it's like andy's like going for like these really like interesting niche crimes that like i feel like would have made headlines josh made headlines a woman stuffed in a barrel made headlines the awful treatment of a caretaker like a disabled man headlines Mm -hmm. like he he's either like the most clever criminal to keep getting away with murder or he really likes taking credit for things that he didn't do yeah I'm on the fence here. So Chuck Murphy, the owner of the cabin, again said uh, that it's a terrible, terrible story. But he's like, all I know is that this boy did not go down the chimney. He got in the fireplace and went up. But why? I don't know. He says Hmm. it's one of those sad stories. Wow. Yeah. Who would climb up a chimney backwards? Fuck. That doesn't make any goddamn sense, Chuck. Who would dive into a, a rolled up gym mat? Yeah, that too. <laughs> uh, yeah, shit doesn't add up. That's wild. Yeah. So just a few key points here that I would love to discuss with you because this case is very perplexing. So the wire mesh, the like rebar that they put over the chimney would not have allowed anybody to go inside from the top, um, even if it was rusted away. Like it could have been bent and manipulated. Sure. What do you think about that? 
when Chuck had the workers remove the metal, he's saying that it was still intact. It was still in place. Like, it didn't seem like it was meddled with. I feel like even if it was, you would have evidence of that on the body. Like, you'd have scratches. and That's true. And, and things like that that would... Prove that. And Al Boren said that there was no trauma to the body. Yeah. Interesting. Which is, like, even more, like, confusing because it's, like, you want to, like, say, like, this kid didn't jump down this chimney wearing just a fucking Mm t-shirt. But, like, also you want to believe that, like, somebody did this but how could they have manipulated him to do such a thing especially if you're shoving somebody up a chimney like that's gonna leave marks that's gonna leave bruises is it better if it's an accident on his part or if it's a murder i don't know i I think it's better if it's a murder why because like when you're thinking about like the bar in the kitchen getting placed to block him yeah like, that is, like, somebody saying, like, I'm going to shove this guy either down or up a chimney and I want to make sure he doesn't get out. Yeah. And, like, folding yeah. his clothes. Yeah. That's weird. That, I think, is the weirdest part. Yeah. Um, so, if it was an accident, why why would he remove his clothes? Yeah. That is... I mean, odd. as a dude, personally, I would think I would keep my boxers on. Yeah. Like, of anything. I mean, even as a woman, I'd probably keep my underwear on. Yeah. Because, like, you're going down a chimney. Like, what are you going to do? Rub your dick into the brick? Like, that just seems that weird. like the weirdest thing. That is very odd. You would want to preserve that, right? Yeah. So, like, the only thing I could think of is, like, somebody wanted to fucking kill him and was like, yo, what would be, like, the most, like, humiliating. shaming, humiliating thing? Like, not thing? only, like, you don't just want to kill him. You want to make sure it's, like, embarrassing when yeah. he's found. Yeah. Yeah. Which so. it wasn't, but, I mean... Yeah, because he was basically bones by then. Right. Um, so, anyways, that's basically the story of Josh. Um, a lot of sources, I just wanted to mention this, went back and forth. Kind of like the thing about Zach and how his death did or did not affect Josh. People were like, oh, he had no history of mental health issues, so why would he want to, like, jump down a chimney? Mm. But then other sources were like, oh, yeah, he was super fucked up, so, like, he had mental health issues, so it makes sense that he, like, jumped into a chimney. So, like, <laughs> Yeah. Another one of those things where it's, like, mental health matters and, like, dismissing it, being like, oh, he had no history of mental health because, like, you... I'm sorry, I didn't realize you had his brain. Yeah, right. I don't know. I just wanted to talk about that because it was just kind of... It bothered me that a lot of sources were like, right. he didn't have any mental health issues. Like, I'm sorry, dude, are you a doctor? Do you know what he was going? That is it. That is the story of Josh. Very interesting and sad. I think it's very sad. I don't think he went in that chimney on his own. No. No, I agree with that. But why or who? I think it's interesting that like the history of the cabin on its own is very dark. Yeah. So, like, what are the chances that, like, this is something that, like, happens? Yeah. I also wanted to talk about Chuck's brother that lived there, because he lived there, like, like three years before Josh went missing. And so, like, part of me was like, what if he, like, walked in and Josh was, like, making himself at home, like, chilling mm-hmm. in this cabin that, like, he found in the woods. So and, he's like, like, oh, nope. Yeah. I don't know. Hmm. Who knows? But Chuck, there was... Really no suspects in this crime. Probably people of interest, but I couldn't find anything on anybody who was, like, even close to being a suspect. Right. Besides this Andy dude, but they were like, we don't 
like your words of being like, oh yeah, he was seen near him sometimes. Yeah, that's unhelpful. not enough to convict somebody. No. Wow. Yes. Wow, indeed. Damn. Poor Josh. Poor Josh. Um, my sources were like strangeoutdoors.com, mysteries unsolved, uh, Dread Central, and the Denver Post. Very nice. Um, I don't think I mentioned mine. Uh, Murderpedia, biography.com, and Wikipedia. Science scared. I've <laughs> done more research in the two pages of my novel than I have for this. Yeah. Fucking. Yep. Uh, research for this yep. post. Yep. Podcast. <laughs> well, do you have anything else? No, I think that's it. Okay. Well, you can find us and all of our various links on Instagram. If you don't have an Instagram, uh, you can email us at who knew podcast 666 at gmail.com or you can just find us on Patreon. You can just party with us. Totes. Come to our house. Nope. Don't come here. Okay. <laughs> okay. Bye. This was great. Come again.